Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me as always is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask you, how is asteroid mining going to affect my bank account? Pro <laughs> pretty dramatically, if you're invested correctly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of what I would want from an asteroid. Well, when I went into this interview that we just did with uh, Joel Sircell, I was thinking that it would be essentially tugboats in space hooking lines up to giant chunks of gold and towing it back. So if you could somehow get involved in one of those, I think it would impact your bank account pretty dramatically. Yeah, so I, I have this vision of people with jackhammers getting out and chopping up a, an asteroid. <laughs> I, I don't think that's how it actually works, though, because uh, these these asteroids are, are not nearby. I mean, it's not like going... Uh, 10, 10 miles down the street or anything. <laughs> no, definitely not. And not carrying your own oxygen supply and your own fuel source either. Yeah. And so I think we need a space elevator to get there. Well, that's one way to one way to approach it. The uh, The interview that we just wrapped up with Joel Sircell kind of walked us through the, dy the dynamics of that. And I, I wanted to ask you, uh, what was one thing from the episode that changed your mind the most about how asteroid mining might work? Um. Yeah, I mean, it has to do with not having humans flying into space. I mean, it's doing it all in an automated fashion. Right. So we're sending robots into space, and the robots are doing all the work. And um, and then the uh, kind of the depth of thinking on what's the first thing you're looking for, what's the second thing you're looking for, and if those things don't pan out, then what are other options that mm -hmm. you're mining for? And then how do you go about uh, uh, capitalizing on those? And, uh, and the fact that water is such a valuable commodity in space, uh, just, uh, I mean, we just drive down the street and there's a lake there. Right, right. And... It doesn't seem valuable at all, but in space, all the economics change. All the economics change yeah. when, when you talk about having to hoist it up into the sky on a pillar of fire. Then everything kind of changes. And for me, I, I think the the shift in perspective that was the most dramatic was hearing somebody just walk through it step by step. So obviously, being a big science fiction fan, asteroid mining just comes up all the time. Uh, Neil Stevenson's novel Seven Eves opens with a whole discussion about how that might work, and they actually are mining water in space. So I should have made that connection earlier, but I, I didn't have a very clear vision of what that would look like or how you might scaffold a development into space by first mining water and then building up from that to propulsive equipment, radiation shielding, then looking at precious elements, precious metals, things like that, which might really materially impact the economy of the earth in a more direct way. So I, I think for me, just hearing that from an expert was very eye-opening and it was it was just fantastic. So you're saying that fishing on an asteroid's not practical? <laughs> apparently not. I'm not <laughs> an hour ago, I might have said yes, but no, apparently it's not. Space fish, less of a problem than you might think. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Well, I, I think it's important that we set the stage and set the tone properly as we get into this interview here. Absolutely. 
It's been said that the first trillionaire will either come from crypto assets or from asteroid mining. The truth is, it's almost impossible to fathom the vast quantities of resources from plain water to gold, which are locked up in asteroids. Figuring out how to tap into this potential will be crucial to developing cislunar supply chain solutions to service the growing space economy. Tonight, we're joined by Joel Sircell, an expert in this field. Joel got his PhD in space propulsion and plasma physics from Caltech, then went on to a stellar career as an award-winning engineer and manager. Today, he's the president and CEO of Trans Astronautica, where he works to make asteroid mining and manufacturing in space a reality. If you enjoy this interview, please help us grow by subscribing to the podcast and, most importantly, sharing it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Joel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. That I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Us as well. Yeah, space manufacturing, the, the whole asteroid mining angle is something that comes up all the time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on building the space economy? Sure. Uh, well, my background is um, a career in space technology and innovation and engineering. PhD from Caltech. Uh, in mechanical engineering, uh, basically a thesis in plasma physics and space propulsion. Um, 14 years at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where Carl Sagan used to work. Um, uh, worked on many interesting things at JPL. Then uh, after that, a career doing lots of different kinds of things. Uh, worked for the Air Force. Um, this is my third tech startup right now. Um, uh, used to be a management consultant, engineering, uh, in engineering and management consultant. Used to train people all over the world and how to design spacecraft and space missions. Um, my interests. Go ahead. Have you actually been into space? Have you traveled? Well, into um, low Earth orbit. I, I am. I let's hold on for a minute here. I'm actually traveling right now at thirty kilometers per second around the sun on a voyage that will take a year to make a full circle. And I've done it 61 times. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm in space right now along with you and everyone so, else we so, know. But so, no, I have not personally traveled into space. Okay. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Stanley Love, who is an astronaut, who is was a uh, my I often say my best ever student when I taught at Caltech for a dozen years. Um, he was doing a postdoc at Caltech when I met him. Became an astronaut. He's on the board of directors of TransAstra. Um, he's been in space. When I was a young engineer at JPL, I was invited to have dinner with Neil Armstrong. That was Ooh. very exciting. Wow. Yes. You got any cool yes. stories from that? What was, what was Neil like? It, Neil Armstrong was... A typical test pilot. I grew up around test pilots and astronaut or test pilots and fighter pilots and that sort of thing. And um, in my experience as a child, you know, young man, child, those days, fighter pilots and test pilots were similar characters mm -hmm. with test pilots having less bravado. And really? uh, he just struck me as just a straight down the middle, really sort of interested, listening 
completely not full of himself in any way, shape, or form. <coughs> Had the build of a test pilot with the, the big neck from pulling G's. Um, and he just it just seemed like a you know like the the guys that uh, were my father and his friends that we that I grew up with as a kid. It, it always occurred super to me. nice guy. It always occurred to me that the early astronauts, one of the skills they had to have is they had to somehow deal with the claustrophobia of being in that tiny little capsule and, yeah. and spend countless hours in it. Um, and uh, the typical person would just go berserk wanting to get out of that that space. Yeah, I mean, they, they would psychologically test them for claustrophobia as part of the test program. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a thing. Imagine, yeah, pretty rigorous test process to fly a rocket yeah. into space. Uh, so your company, you called it Transastra earlier. It's Transastronautica, right? Is is that the full name? Yeah. Of it? So you know, like like uh, people know that um, the full name of the short name of the Space Exploration Corporation is SpaceX. I see. Okay. So often companies will have a full name, and then they'll have a doing business as. So trans the Trans Astronautica Corporation. AKA Transastra. Transastra is one word, no spaces. The T and the A are capital. Okay. Sometimes we go by Transastra and sometimes Transastra Corporation. We're just very confusing. I got, <laughs> I got you. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish there. How old's the company? What, what are you guys working on? Just sure. Give us a rundown. Well, Transastra is dedicated to um, making humanity immortal as a species, making life from Earth immortal uh, in the sense that we can't go extinct. And um, the only way to do that is to continue to grow exponentially into the indefinite future. And as big as the Earth is, um, there's a lot of people on the Earth, mm -hmm. and eventually we're going to outstrip the carrying capacity of the Earth. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about it is that the asteroids provide enough resources for a thousand years of human exponential growth to support a population of a trillion people. And uh, there's a calculation that you can do with a little bit of research to figure out if you were to take all the material in the asteroids and build it into a radiation shield that's seven meters thick how big would that surface area of that shield be? And it's a thousand times the land area of the Earth. So, and that means that you can build worlds out of astero asteroids with a thousand times the human carrying capacity of the Earth. And so, in order for humanity to make the leap into space and to continue to grow exponentially, and it's a little scary that we're kind of starting to roll over and not grow exponentially. Because species like Homo sapien don't do well when they're not growing exponentially. Um, uh, so, in, in, so you can do a calculation that says that the resources are there in the asteroids, and then the the energy, you know, the material resources in the asteroids and the energy is there in the sun, virtually unlimited energy supply. And so, as far as the eye can see, there's an exciting future for humanity. So. Um, in uh, science fiction and astronomy um, uh, communities, they have these words for different classes of civilizations. And right. like, so an astronomer, many 
decades ago was thinking about like what would truly advanced civilizations look like right and and he said well human beings you know homo sapien right now would be a type zero civilization and then a type one civilization would be a civilization that could could consume all of the solar energy or the energy from its star that impinged on the surface of the planet well we only consume about one tenth of one percent of the solar energy that impinges on the earth so we're 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 you know um 0.01 percent of a type one civilization you could say in a way that transastra's goal is to become a is to help humanity come, become a type one civilization. The Kardashev, isn't that the Kardashev one? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and once you're type one, then you take off and you can exponentiate into space and and, and be immortal. But the question is, it's great to have these grandiose ideas. How do you make money on that in the here and now? I'm going to ask you that so, in a minute, but I think Thomas. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, sure. Go I, ahead. I know you talk a lot about uh, creating a sustainable uh, space colony, and yeah, I wanted, wanted not a sp- yeah <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we need a sp- sustainable space colony, but one space settlement is not sustainable. Mm, right. What you need is a you need a, a, a space economy yeah. that stretches around the whole inner solar system and later throughout the solar system. Yeah. So far. Uh, we've never had a baby that's born in space, and yes. we we don't know exactly what happens to a child that's exactly. born, born in a different gravity. And exactly, uh, and have you? Um, I mean, have you done projections as to what's going to be necessary to raise a child in space? Yeah. So um, the problem is not enough research has been done on that, and. The concern, and, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why I'm a huge asteroid advocate and not a Mars or Moon advocate. And that is because human beings have evolved in a 1G gravity field, you know, for what, two point something billion years, depending on who you, who you believe in terms of when first life started on the Earth, um, that we know of no life that has ever lived in a microgravity environment. And there are good theoretical reasons to believe that, light, that, that higher mammals cannot live in a microgravity environment or even a significantly reduced gravity environment. Um, every year, research comes in from astronauts spending extended t- periods of time in space, say, the longer you spend in space, the more, more deleterious it is on your physiology and health. And that process continues forever. And um, it, it may very well be that people can live in lunar gravity. It may very well be that people can live in Mars gravity. But we have exactly zero scintillas of evidence to prove that. Um, what we do know is that people can live in 1G. And we also know that you can build a big spinning uh, world that provides 1G. We also know that people can live in radiation environments that are roughly comparable to the Earth. You know, like Denver has more radiation than Kansas, right? Mm -hmm. You're fine in Denver, you're fine in Kansas. But, like, how many times Denver radiation can people handle for long periods of time? Again, we don't know. Um, uh, So the things that you want to provide for human beings living for multi-generationally in in space are 1G of gravity, Earth, so as close to Earth normal atmosphere as possible, 
and as close to Earth normal radiation as possible. Um, in order to get the atmosphere and radiation on the moon and Mars, you have to live underground. I don't want to live underground. Right. But we know from structural analysis and design studies that have been done that you can build inside out spinning worlds that are very terrestrial in their nature that can provide all the earth normal requirements human beings have. So to me, it's cool to think about space settlements on the moon and Mars and other places, but to actually plan on that plan on making money on that without having done the basic research of raising many generations of mice in different gravity levels. By the way, if you raised many generations of mice in different gravity levels, all that would tell you is that it's not unethical to raise many ge generations of dogs. In, right. You know, <laughs> so like, like you need to follow proper ethical guidelines mm -hmm. with human experimentation, with animal experimentation. It's really sad that we've had, you know, the space station up for so many years and we've just now barely beginning some decent research in this area. It should really be done. But until that, but until small populations of people have lived and work in space to show that the first generation survives, the second generation survives, there's a big difference between a highly trained, physically fit astronaut going up and training for hours in the gym every day in a space station for a couple of years versus a family raising children, mm -hmm. gestating Right. new babies in the womb in microgravity giving birth to them and then how do their bones form without gravity we know that bone formation depends critically on gravity we know that bone formation and calcium in bones is critical to many other biological processes in the human body we know that every astronaut that's been exposed to long duration space travel has suffered from immune deficiency you guys know what telomeres are mm -hmm. So yeah. telomeres are these little end caps on the chromosomes in your cells. We know that astronauts in space change telomere length. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and now one of the leading areas of biological research is epigenetics. Mm -hmm. Epigenetics is the study not of genetic inheritance, but of inherited traits from life and the study of gene expression and so on. And we now know that what you do in your life other than your genes, can also be passed on to your children and their children and their children. Right. And so the ethical implications of sending millions of people to a place like Mars before we've done the basic research are horrendous. It's, it's, uh, it's like some of the horrible biological mistakes of the 20th century that we don't make because that's why we invented, we, uh, we the c civilization, invented bioethics. So we need to do that work. But in the meantime, if we're talking about settling space, needs to be in free space settlements made of asteroid material. So you're telling me if I take a trip into space, I can live longer, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you know, that's the other side of this, is that the res it turns out that the biological effects of space travel very closely mimic accelerated aging. And so research that goes into mitigating the biological effects of space travel in my opinion will also mitigate and slow the aging process and you know this that i don't that like um you know it has to do with um gene expression how gene expression is controlled in cells the endocrine system um 
the immune system and lots of other stuff. But that's that that's that's kind of an interest of mine, but not not the my main my not my main gig. That's not what Transaster is all about. So the the ethical questions you raise, I think are very fascinating. Sure. I, I had never thought about it in that light before that it's in effect, a kind of large scale experiment on lots of people who, whether or not they consented to it might still raise ethical questions that we have to consider. Right. Just because someone consents to do something that's not proven to be safe, doesn't mean you can prove you, you that it's ethically and even legally correct to make billions of dollars, taking money from them to do that. You know, like, mm-hmm. like, um, and you know, it's the reason we have an FDA so that, uh, someone can't start a drug company, come up with a drug, claim it does one thing, sell it to people and not have any proof. Right. Right. And when you sell a car, you have to show that the car is safe. Um, uh, I, I, I wish, I kind of wish I lived in a world where a bunch of crazy people could, like if a bunch of people wanted to organize themselves and go off to Mars, and, and no one's profiting off of it, take their own chances, that's cool. But then when you think about epigenetics and the fact that it caused terrible deformities, life-threatening, painful illnesses three generations later, then you have to ask, well, is that really okay? It definitely does get pretty thorny. Uh, what, what I wanted to ask about is not, <laughs> we do sometimes get into <laughs> ethics on the podcast and it, it can kind of just go on forever. I, I, I'm interested in hearing about the mechanics of mining an asteroid. So this is your major you pitch. This is what you're really interested in. You've, you've ably made the case that we should be focusing more on that than on Mars or the moon. Yep. I'm with you. So just, I, I've read a fair number of articles about asteroid mining. It comes up in science fiction all the cool. time, but I'm not really sure what it looks like. These are small bodies. How do you stabilize them? How do you drill into something where the surface gravity is negligible? What, what's Transaster doing to solve these engineering problems? Yeah, so one way you can tell that someone has done any reasonable scientific thinking about harvesting resources from asteroids is if they show a picture of a spacecraft landing on the asteroid and harvesting resources, you know they don't know the first thing about it. <laughs> You, you can't really land on an asteroid. You can touch and go. You can rendezvous with. You can you can grapple an asteroid. If you try to grab it, probably whatever you grab will come off in your hands and you go floating off into space. So asteroids are there's there's pro, what we know about asteroids tell us tells us that they come in all kinds of shapes and colors and sizes and physical forms. But in general, you cannot think about them the way you think about terrestrial land, walking on things, digging in things, that sort of thing. And our study of this convinces us that the only practical way to to harvest resources from an asteroid, what other people call mining asteroids, sometimes we do too, is you fly up to the asteroid, and typically an asteroid will be tumbling, Mm -hmm. and you match the tumble rate of your spacecraft with the asteroid, and you have to have a large enclosure. The way that we prefer to do it is with an inflatable, what we call a capture bag. So it's it's a it's a a, a, a big opening that's made of a flexible membrane like a bag. When you launch it into space, it's all packed up very tightly in a small container. When you get into space, you use inflatable structures to inflate tubes that hold it in an open position. You fly up to the asteroid, you match spin rotation with the asteroid, you fly the bag over the asteroid, you zip it closed. Then you cinch it down to the spacecraft. Now you have positive control over this unwieldy mass uh, that could be of many different physical forms in space. 
But once you cinch it down, you have positive control of it over it. Then you use the attitude control system, which is the engineer's word for saying the thing that points the spacecraft in the right direction mm -hmm. to de-spin the asteroid. Takes a fair amount of propellant to despin the rocket propellant, rocket what people call fuel, to despin the asteroid. Once you despin it, then you use our patented method of asteroid mining called optical mining. Now, if you have to carry things that look like mining equipment into space, you're not going to make any money because every kilogram or every ounce of mass that you bring up is precious moving parts with gears and bearings and all that kind of stuff wear out. So we've invented a way to drill through solid rock using just sunlight. So, and we think sunlight is the most um, copious, affordable, clean, free, safe uh, energy source in the solar system. What we've shown is that with large solar reflectors, in fact, if you go to my, if you go to my LinkedIn profile today, you will see a picture of a solar concentrator in the parking lot of the Hive. The Hive is the Transastra headquarters, about 10, 10 miles from here. Uh, there's a, a reflector that's pointed at the sun that's focusing the sun's light down to a point. And we've shown that highly focused sunlight can drill holes in rock material like asteroids are made of. And as it heats them up, it drives out many of the very valuable volatile materials. Volatile, volatile fluid is any fluid that uh, vaporizes or boils at elevated temperature or reduced pressure. So the first things that we're going to want to harvest from asteroids are the ingredients of rocket propellant. And the most important ingredient of rocket propellant is water. So what we do is with our, um, our honeybee design of asteroid vehicles, we, we have large, lightweight, uh, for the very large designs, they're actually inflatable solar concentrators that concentrate the sunlight through tubes into the bag, heats up portions of the asteroid, causes them to spall, digs holes in them. As it heats up those portions of the material, gas comes out, but we've got a bag around it, so the gas is captured in the bag. We have a hole in the side of the bag that leads to a tunnel that leads to another bag. And, and the secondary bag, which is very thin, lightweight material, is made of a special kind of material that when you put it in space with all the radiation that's in space, it gets really, really cold. So the water vapor comes out of the asteroid, and there's much more to this. I'm giving the, the simple version. And then it deposits in the secondary bag as ice. And what we've shown in our, in our analytical studies and our laboratory work, it's been largely funded by NASA, that we can build a spacecraft that weighs about as much as a big pickup truck that can fly out to an asteroid that's about as big as a single family home. Now that uh, an asteroid the size of a single family home probably weighs about a thousand tons, say 500 to a thousand tons. The bag that encloses it weighs about a thousand pounds. The enclosing bag encloses the asteroid. We use sunlight to mine the extract the valuable material from it. And we can collect, we think, about 100 tons of water from it. How much is 100 tons of water? It's roughly comparable to a small backyard swimming pool. Now you say, well, what's 100 tons of water going to do for you? That doesn't sound like very much. To some people, it sounds like a lot. Other people, not very much. To me, it's neither half full or half empty. It's 100 tons of water. 100 tons of water has a market price of $750 million in geostationary orbit. 
How do I know that? Because Transastra has a contract to sell 100 tons of ice in geostationary orbit as soon as we can get our honeybee mining vehicle working. So, and so we have, go in, ahead. In sending a spacecraft up to the asteroid, does it require uh, human beings to go on it or can it all be done robotically? In order to be cost effective, you've got to do it robotically. You okay. cannot afford the cost of putting human beings on these things. So the honeybee vehicle will have to have, you know, a, a total recurring cost of sort of well under $200 million. And you're not going to do that if it carries people, not, not for a long time. So, um, and then each honeybee vehicle will fly out to an asteroid, harvest the resources from it, bring those resources back to a gas station in what we call cislunar space, which is a space in the vicinity of Earth and the moon and fill up that gas tank, that gas station. We think each honeybee will be able to do about three of those missions. So launching a single honeybee that weighs about 30, about maybe several thousand pounds, and each one can bring back 100 tons of ice, we get a huge multiplier on how much mass we have to launch into space to get those resources back to cislunar space. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then what we do with those resources is we build a refueling station and we sell propellant to others, and we use the propellant ourselves for our space trucks. Our space trucks are called worker bees. They're powered by sunlight, just like our mining vehicles, um, and they're our first orbital delivery service. So long before we do asteroid mining, we'll be delivering satellites in low Earth orbit from point A to point B using water as propellant. Initially, the water will be launched up from the Earth, to cut our teeth and learn how to build trucks in space, what we call orbit transfer vehicles or space tugs. Um, and so we're working really hard on that. And if you guys come by our lab, uh, the, the Hive, about 10 minutes from here, we can show you a working prototype of the a worker bee orbit transfer vehicle working with its omnivore space propulsion system right in our lab. Where are you guys at? Where's Transaster? We're in the Los Angeles area. Okay. So in the eastern part of the San Fernando Valley, right, right near the town of San Fernando. So what, what is the date you're planning your first launch? Um, we're planning our first launch as soon as possible. We think we can do it within 18 months. It all depends on the funding. Um, so far, we've raised several million dollars of private sector venture and several million dollars of NASA investment. And we need several million more to make uh our worker bee alpha prototype flying space. So we're on a good track to get there. That's remarkable. And, and your early endeavors are focused entirely on extracting water from the asteroids because it seems like you're scaffolding up to profitability that way. Propellant, very important. You don't want to make it on Earth because yep. then you've got to lug it up to space and that costs propellant to right. get propellant. You know, So if, if you can do it in space, that's obviously much better. Is that Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah. So the, the way it works is we start with a long range vision. Where do we need to go as a civilization? Mm -hmm. What what is what can Transaster uh, uh, contribute to that? And we start to develop the technology for that. What are the really important technologies for helping humanity become a type one civilization? And then we, we get the, the, the long range technology funding to develop those technologies. But we do it with a very practical bent so we can build it now, not in 10 years. And then we say, what are the commercial opportunities for this? So, uh, so, so we thought, okay, long range future of humanity is asteroids in space. 
in order before that happens we need to be, be harvesting thousands of tons and then millions of tons of asteroid material before that happens we need space trucks mm -hmm. because the space truck is needed to carry the mining vehicle there is there so what what is the space truck that works with asteroids look like well it has a solar thermal rocket engine that can run on the stuff that comes out of asteroids water so we invented the omnivore rocket engine which is a solar powered rocket engine that can run on water or virtually anything else that's why we call it the omnivore by the way we recently received the patent on it that allows us to have the only engine in the world that can operate on solar power on virtually any propellant then we ask well what's a business that we can make a lot of money right now today so that we can get investors to help pay for the technology scale the company make the money on that short-term business use that money to scale the company further and you know it's really it's the same thing that elon musk is doing with spacex he has this long-range vision to go to mars which which i think is a great vision i happen to disagree with it for reasons we talked about earlier mm -hmm. um, more power to him for heading in that direction and then he worked out well what's a business i can start with and to start going to mars and that's rockets well, we did a similar kind of thing. We said, what's a business we can start with? And that's orbit transfer vehicles. There's another business that we're doing that has to do with asteroids. That's very exciting in the here and now. And it's operational right now today in our company. And that's the Sutter, Sutter Telescope technology. Did you, have you guys ever heard of Sutter's Mill in, in California? Right. Yes. 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 Okay. So Sutter's Mill is a mill that was at, at Sutter's trading post in Northern California back in the early 1800s where they found gold. And then because they found gold there, that led to the California gold rush and largely the settlement of the American West and the United States becoming an economic superpower, mm -hmm. you know, the middle class and all that good stuff. Um, so we realized that our long range vision of asteroids is a real problem because we only know where point zero 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 three percent of all the asteroids are when we know where most of the big ones are but these little ones that you can manage with a vehicle the size of a pickup truck we don't know where any of them are hardly there's we only know where about 10 of those are that are low enough in delta v that delta v is how we measure how hard it is to get around in space we know about where only 10 of them are that would be good asteroid mining targets and we need to know thousands of them to make it an economically viable scheme. So we started working years ago on the Sutter Telescope technology with early stage NASA funding. And I'm really happy to report that we now have the Sutter telescopes operating at two observatories, one called the Weiner Observatory near Tucson, Arizona, and another observatory that we, we I don't think we've announced the actual location of the observatory or our partnership with them, but we have telescopes operating that observatory every night finding asteroids. Now, you think, well, that's cool. That's kind of a scientific curiosity, but why is that important from a business perspective and what can you do with it now? Well, one thing is we can find asteroids to mine mm -hmm. and we'll be the only ones who know where they are if we choose to. The other thing is, there's a very important commercial product and service right now today as an unmet need of finding moving things in space because space is getting really crowded and traffic management is starting to be a real issue and there's a lot of debris up there. And so the Space Force and NASA and the private sector are working together to try to figure out everything that's up there in space. And it turns out that the Sutter telescope technology that we've, we've developed for finding faint moving targets in space 
is perfect for finding traffic and debris in space. And there's a commercial market for that right now. And we're operational right now. That's uh, so this, yeah, we're very excited about it. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So a couple, a couple of questions for you. Um, my first question has to do with uh, when you're drilling a, a hole in that asteroid and you end up uh, getting a dry hole. Um, you don't get the water. Yeah. <laughs> and the, yeah. the second question is, is what, what value do you have in a patent in space? Uh, I, I'm not sure how that's enforceable. Uh, but, but, so let me start with the, what is the value of a space patent right now? I was just talking to a friend of mine that we have a partnership with who just made $50 million on a space patent. Okay. The reason it's enforceable is because you have to build the spacecraft and operate the spacecraft doing business with companies and countries here on the earth. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's like, it's not like there are space pirates up there <laughs> that can read your patent build your engine and not tell anyone not yet okay. so not yet actually there probably will be before we, can, we know it if we work hard <laughs> enough we can achieve that future that's right space so, pirates. so, so the, yeah so patents in the space business are just as important as patents anywhere else um by the way um i we have a lot of patents we're, we're getting about one patent a month we're anticipating another dozen patents in the next year um the reason that i pursue patents is very simple it's good business Okay. Um, if I, if I was a billionaire, if I had, if I, if I was already had a super well-funded company, you know, with $500 million in the bank, I probably wouldn't spend as much time and energy on patents because what I would do instead is our engineering processes are so much faster that we just build things and go faster. Than just, them. yeah. Outstrip them. And, and, uh, you know, like, I think I get the impression that sort of Elon can get, can get away with that. That definitely would be a preferred way of doing business. Um, but given the fact that I'm here on the earth working with today's investors and today's business partners and everything, patents are part of doing business. So I advertise our patents. Um, now, let's talk about the dry hole issue. So um, earth – dry holes don't happen on asteroids the way they happen on earth. And we know this. We have good science on it. Um, Earth is what is referred to geolog in scientific terms as a geologically differentiated planet, right? So Earth was formed when a whole bunch of asteroids and some comets and some other space debris collected together with under gravitational forces. And different objects, different asteroids came from different parts of the solar system, having been made of different things because they came from different parts of the solar system. And they form this conglomerate, right? So it's, it's like a little kid playing with Play-Doh, right? He gets some blue clay and some red clay and some yellow clay, and he starts to glom it all together, right? And then as it heats, um, it forms, it, it melts. And when it melts, all the really heavy stuff called rare earth metals, for this reason, go to the center of the earth because it's heavier. And then the lighter stuff that the crust is made of stays on the crust. 
And then if you want something like iron in the crust, you have to find a vein of it that you get lucky with, okay? And the way you got lucky is there happened to be an iron asteroid, which was basically made of all iron, that crashed there and got spread around and formed a vein. Or you might, like we've been asteroid mining for close to 100 years in Canada. There was a metal iron asteroid that formed Hudson Bay, and people mine metal iron asteroids out of the Earth all the time. But if you go to a metal iron asteroid and you start digging, you hit one thing. Do you know what it is? Metal iron. Now, there are some asteroids, like there are some big asteroids, like Vesta and Ceres. By the way, Vesta and Ceres were both visited by the Dawn spacecraft. And Dawn was propelled by a, a propulsion system called NSTAR. NSTAR was the NASA Space Technology Application Readiness Engine. That's a terrible acronym. And I'm the guy who's guilty of having made up that acronym because I started the NSTAR project when I was at JPL and was the one who figured out how to use ion propulsion to explore the main belt asteroids. Um, but Vesta and Ceres are protoplanets that are somewhat differentiated. And now, if you happen to come across an asteroid that was knocked off of a protoplanet like that, that's partially differentiated, that's accumulated of other asteroids, you can come across an asteroid where there are different parts of it that are made of different things. But we have ways with telescopes and statistical models to make sure that the asteroids that we approach are called are what, what some planetary scientists call primitive asteroids, which means that they were formed in a certain region of the solar system out of whatever material was in that region. Then they've migrated to where they are today, mm -hmm. and they're still made out of that same stuff. And when you dig a hole on one of those asteroids, doesn't matter where you dig, you get the same stuff. So they're homogenous okay, in so a way that a planet isn't. They're, they're homogenous in a way that a planet isn't. Now, I had to give you that long <laughs> explanation because um, I've said in other settings, well, we're going to go after primitive asteroids and they're homogenous. And the planetary scientists get very upset because they say, well, they're not all primitive. They're all not all homogenous. But there are statistical ways, and we could get into a big argument among uh, astronomers and asteroid modelers about spectroscopy and that sort of thing. But we have solid science that we can pick out the asteroids that are the taxonomies that we want. And there's it's a very in-depth technical discussions on how to do that. And then get to an asteroid. And when we get to it, it's all made of the right stuff. And there's some possibility that when we get to an asteroid, it's not what we expect. And we can calculate that possibility with statistics and then we have to build that into our economic model. A certain fraction of our missions will go to the wrong asteroid. Mm -hmm. And that's all part of the economic modeling that we do. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So when, when you go to an asteroid, do you then lay claim to it? Do you own it? Do you get a deed to that asteroid? Um, Great question. Um, you should. 
But if you got a deed, deeds are granted by governmental authorities, and which governmental authority would give it to you? I think Facebook. Um, <laughs> United States of America. Put a, there put a flag there, America. and it's yours. Yeah, that's that's, that's always right. been the procedure. So this, this, so, so, the international space law says you can't lay claim to territory or real estate in space. But the the, the general reading of international law and the consensus is that if you if you um, you can benefit from the resources of space based on your efforts. So what that means is if I go to an asteroid and put a bag around it, if anyone tries to get access to that asteroid and tries to break my bag, that's an, and and I'm a U.S. flagged spacecraft, that's an act of war against the United States. Okay. And, um, and if I go to the moon and I stake out an area with a fence and I say I'm ice mining in this area and I have ice mining equipment, someone tries to get that, they're interfering with my ability to benefit from my efforts in space. So that's, an, that's a violation of international law. But laying claims the way the mining industry does, that's not a thing in space. Okay. It doesn't seem like it need to be either. You're talking about planetoids. You're talking about pretty small bodies for the most part. That's true in the short term. But eventually, space law will have to grow up and look more like traditional law. We'll have to have property it's rights. It's not there yet. Well, you know, property rights were invented to avoid conflict, not mm -hmm. create conflict. Mm -hmm. And um, and wherever we go, we're not going to repeal the laws of human nature. So I have a feeling we're going to reinvent property rights. It'll be interesting to see. After all, because they're rights. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that we need to make sure we bring with us in, in space is human rights. Oh, of course, yes. Um, we, we've spent most of the discussion talking about mining water. What are some of the other things sure. that we might mine in the asteroids? Well, um, the first thing that you mine is ingredients for rocket propellant. We think water is the key one. Um, we can use water directly in our omnivore propulsion systems. Um, we can also clean that water and then separate it into oxygen hydrogen and sell that oxygen hydrogen to others who can use it in LOX hydrogen propulsion system. We can also, every time we do experiments with either meteorites of the, the right type, which are, come from asteroids of the type we want, or with um, simulants that are very carefully scientifically formulated to be like the asteroids we're going for, we also always get methane, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide. And so we can, we, that means that we can make liquid oxygen and methane, which are the same propellants that SpaceX uses in its Starship engines. So, um, uh, so consumables are the first thing. Then after that, raw materials for big structures in space, things like radiation shielding and structures. So the first things that we will we'll make in space will be simple structures that are easy to fabricate through things like 3D printing. So the, the, the raw materials for that, we think, will be first. And then we've actually calculated that once our um, worker bee orbit transfer vehicles are up and running and scaled to larger si sizes, harvesting propellant from asteroids instead of lugging it up from the Earth, it'll actually be as cheap to get around in space as air travel. Now, when that happens, and only when that happens, 
it will make sense to actually mine precious metals and strategic materials from asteroids. Then you start going after, you, then you use the propellants that you harvest on one type of asteroid to go on after rare metals and strategic materials at other asteroids. And that's a huge economic game changer for the planet. Um, and, but, but eventually, you know, in the long term, not in the short term of our business planning, but in the long term of our vision, most, we see most manufacturing, most human consumption moving into space. So materials will be used locally to make worlds. What, what's the timeline for all of this? Um, we, there's an expression in the space business, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. Um, the timeline, uh, the only company that I know of that's unconstrained by funding in terms of their timeline is SpaceX. Um, we're constrained by funding. So we can fly Worker B Alpha in about a year with the appropriate funding. We're, right now, we're a little short on the funding. We can have Worker B commercial operations going in 18 months with appropriate funding. Um, we currently have operational, so we're just transitioning our Sutter telescope system on the ground, on observatories here on the ground, from development and test to operations like this week. Um, we can build a global network of Sutter telescopes that will cover the entire night sky, like every square degree of the night sky that's not blanked out by the moon or the sun, every night. And it'll find objects down to the size of the cap capstone spacecraft out at, at the moon. We, we can actually find the capstone spacecraft out at the moon, we think, as soon as it's in the right position. We're going to be looking for that. Um, we, we'll be able to build that network for like $20 million. And that's $20 million I don't have. Do you have $20 million I can borrow? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, you um, check. All that crypto money. Uh, I mean, we do we do have millions of dollars, but space is very expensive. Yeah. Um. So we're in a fundraising campaign right now. So so we could have a Sutter Space Telescope up in orbit in 18 months. We're going to have worker bees up in test in a, in a year, operational in 18 months. We can have the first honeybee mission to an asteroid to bring back 100 tons of, of water easily in seven to eight years. It's just a matter of funding. So inside of a decade, you could be hauling huge amounts of water back to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then for building and out. And that the will be huge for NASA and the Space Force for their ambitions in space. And then that will pave the way for large commercial industries in space. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. What do you think some of those industries will be? Um, well, obviously, the first one is we've gone from space communication as a kind of a micro industry, like on a global scale, it's been a $200 billion a year industry, which sounds like a lot. But then when you think about, you know, $100 trillion world economy or something like that, it's not that much. Um, uh, but we're getting into the real era of space communications or space communications is going to be a trillion dollar business. And once space communications becomes a trillion-dollar business, the Internet back backbone will move into space. When the Internet backbone is in space, then it makes sense to 
um, to put thousands of Earth observing satellites in space tied to the internet backbone and put the data centers that are processing all that imagery in space. So, so if the internet backbone is in space, the data centers should be in space. Data centers need to be where power is cheap and where you got good internet, that's gonna be space. Um, people don't realize that solar power is terrible on the earth compared to how it is in space. Um, like for example, I'm sitting in my house right now, I have a 10 kilowatt solar panel, solar array on the top of my house. The most power it ever puts out for an hour or two on a good day in the summer is about 7.8 kilowatts. And on an average day over the year, it puts out 30 kilowatt hours of power. If it was in space, it would put out 240 kilowatt hours of energy every day, 24 seven, day in, day out for decades. And so solar power makes a huge amount of, of <coughs> sense in space. And as space transportation and space launch comes down, it actually makes more sense to generate electric power in space than on the ground. What are you gonna use it for? Running data centers and communication services in space at first. And there are even some applications where you might send the power down to the earth for consumption here on the earth. Yeah. Well, this has been like a college course in asteroid mining 101 here. I uh, think this is terrific. It's been absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Are there, cool. uh, are there any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Um, anywhere you want to send the audience? Well, you know, we, we, um, uh, we're always looking for customers and investors and business partners. And if you go to transaster.com, go to the contact page um, for customers who need satellites delivered from where rockets leave them off in space to where they need to go so they don't have to have their own propulsion systems, go to missions, send us an email to missions at transaster.com. That's on the contact page. Investors, there's a, there's a link for investors. We are in the middle of, we're raising money right now at a pretty good clip. Um, so uh, we're giving a really good deal right now to investors. It's the same deal that we offered a few months ago, just because the economy turned south. So it's a great time to get in as an, as an investor. Um, and then uh, sometimes we're hiring. Right now we're in a hiring freeze for the next few months, but we're always looking for super good talent. Um, you know, um, we have an amazing crew of about 25 mostly young, but some grizzled old like me also, engineers, scientists, and uh, business development people, lawyers, everything, but 90, 90% uh, scientists and engineers at Transastra. I mean, you know, like we have um, Hayden Burgoyne, who we recruited away from JPL a few months ago. Um, he, he was on the Europa Clipper mission at JPL, and before we got him, he did his PhD at Caltech, and the year he, unlike me, who like when I got my PhD at Caltech, I was like at the bottom of the class. I think he was actually the top PhD graduate at Caltech. Before that, he was the vice president of spacecraft for another startup. So he's another guy who's done uh, other startups before and had exits and that sort of thing. So we get our, our crew is incredibly talented. If you like working with super talented people who deeply believe in the mission and have a ton of fun working on taking problems that other people would consider technically impossible and just doing them. Transaster is a great place to work. Well, that sounds fantastic. I would encourage everybody to check that out. And I hope you find all the funding and, and talent you could possibly hope for. It seems, seems like what you're trying to accomplish is well within the, uh, the realm of the 
let's say reachable impossible. And uh, I fully endorse it. So I wish you the best of luck. Well, this, Super. Thank you so much. This is just a delight, you guys. This is terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. All right, so Thomas, we just wrapped up episode 101 of the Futurati podcast with Joel Strassel, who is a world-renowned expert in asteroid mining. So in 60 seconds or less, can you tell me, as a futurist, what you think the most exciting near-future project in space exploration is? Well, there's a project going on on the International Space Station right now to see how they can grow stem cells in space. And they're rapidly growing stem cells. Now, harvesting stem cells on Earth is is very laborious and very expensive. And uh, doing it in space, it's very inexpensive. So they can grow tons of them. So stem cell therapy, when you have large quantities of stem cells, suddenly takes on a whole different um, a whole different way of thinking because you can treat people in vastly different ways. I, I think that's going to be an exciting thing to watch. Well, there you guys have it. Stem cells in space. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.